Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait, What? The comics podcast for the Savage Critics website. This is episode 91, the first episode in seven months to live or die on its own without any help from listeners' questions. Do Graham McMillan and I have the ability to carry on a conversation without Twitter or the webpage comments whispering like Cyrano from the bushes? The answer is a resounding kinda, as we cover the weather in Portland and plans for our first live podcast before moving on to really digging into comics with a long discussion about Casanova 3.4, Zosser of Zilk by Brendan McCarthy and Al Ewing, Matt Howard, Lou Stathis, and those annoying Post Brothers, why the song remains the same, copied characters, satire, and analogs, the point of a first issue in modern comics, Spider-Man number one, that old Parker Luck and the Spider-Man movie franchise, the evolution of Marvel's edgier heroes, Saga number four, Avengers vs. X-Men, and more. Not, you know, not that much more, to be honest, but definitely, definitely more. As always, we hope you enjoy, and thanks for listening. Jeff Lester, Jeff Lester, Jeff Lester, hi from my echoey Batcave. <laughs> It's true. You do have some sort of echoey type thing going on. Uh, it's another really warm day in Portland, so I'm actually recording from the basement, which I've done before. I don't oh, know if yeah. you remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, because it's actually far too warm to be upstairs today. Yes. Well, to be fair, upstairs is, I mean, we have had weird echoey things ever since I, even with my new microphone arrangement, which makes me think that your headset has something wacky going on. So... It's possible. Maybe there's an echo function that I didn't even know I've set up. That, that That'd be, be awesome if there's a reverb. But no, I, I mean, I can hear echo just being in the room right now. Oh, yeah. I do pick up a little bit of that Yeah, there in the yeah. background. Lucky, lucky you. Um, so nice warm weather, huh? That's good to know. It's beautiful. And do you want to know something funny but not funny at all? Sure. So you're visiting Portland starting this weekend? Yes. Starting tomorrow, it's apparently supposed to just rain for a week yes 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 that's awesome um believe it or not i'm very (laughs) excited by that yeah i know too bad suckers that's actually what i want i was actually worried that i was going to go up there and it was going to be all like sunny and crap i wanted i wanted at least a few days where it would be like kind of drizzly and overcast oh oh you're getting that but the weather is basically that it is going to be like 65 degrees and wet for the next few days yeah, as long as it's not like a deluge, but eh, you know, I'll take what I can get. I'm basically pretty happy about it. Well, I'm so glad. <laughs> yes. I, I might not tell Edie, however, but because uh, I think that might be a different story for her. But we'll see. Yeah, no, I'm like, are you kidding? That's totally what I want. I, I totally didn't see your reaction being that. I thought you were being sarcastic, being so excited. <laughs> we, yeah. we, should, we should tell the listeners. That um, because you're going to be in Portland next week, we're going to try and record a live Wait What, which we've never done. Yeah, I think that's going to be really – there's a lot of factors that are going to have to happen to make that work, Uh, uh, which I guess means like hauling up this enormous bazooka of a microphone, which uh, I don't have a case for. Well, Um, Kate Kate is convinced that the microphone I use, Mm -hmm. we could both use just by not using the headset, if that makes sense. Huh, interesting. She's huh. convinced that if I leave it on the center of a table between us, it'll pick up both of us. 
Wow, that's fascinating. Well, I am going to bring this enormous thing because in theory, it's like it's designed to be used in all sorts of situations. Um, we, it's just going to take a little bit of experimentation. But yes, a lot. I, I'm not even worried about the recording stuff as much as the idea of like we've talked about this before. The idea of being able to do this and look you in the face. I know. Weirdly weird, you know. I know it's, it's going to be so funny. Like we've known each other for how many years? The first time we tried to do a podcast face to face, I can tell we're both just going to freak out. It's going to be totally awkward. It's totally <laughs> awkward. I know it's going to be bad. And the worst part is, is it's not like we could like both get drunk because you don't drink. So you, you could know also, what I mean? we're probably going to be doing it at like you know this time in the afternoon. Do you really want to be drunk at two o'clock in the afternoon? That's a rhetorical question, isn't it? <laughs> I'm on a vacation. That doesn't sound bad at all. I mean, you know, I mean, the thing that's sad is, is that we won't actually be able to work up the nerve to try and record it live in the waffle window, which would be like the best thing ever. You yeah, know? that that's definitely not going to happen. Can you imagine the two of us being in the waffle window for like three hours talking comics and trying to tell everyone else to be quiet enough that the microphone would pick us up and not everyone else? We'll that's... see. That's it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We'd have to try and test it in the wild, but it might work. You know, I think we could maybe set it as as a sort of parabolic thing that it could pick up both of us, although it would pick up all the rest of that crap in it. But I think it would be worth it just because the listeners could actually hear me be cut off in real time and kicked out of the restaurant so see now i'm like maybe we should record part of it at the waffle window oh yeah and just see what we can get there just yeah. just for the sake of actually just recording you actually getting a waffle live i think that if not, <laughs> like it could be a special snippet of like let's go to the tape and then it'll be being like hi can i have and she'll just be like no <laughs> <laughs> no more waffles for you Ah, uh, yes. Yes. As you can tell, we're dreaming big, listeners. We're <laughs> dreaming big. Oh, man. Hey, how you doing? Uh, you know, I'll fill you in a little bit closer to perhaps the hard stop because I feel like we're already like wasting precious, precious comic book time. It's already been five minutes. Good Lord. So <laughs> let's just well, say that I'm good, but apparently um, a little on the anal retentive side. Should we talk comics? I don't even know what we're going to be talking about. Let's so. talk comics. I've only read two comics this week, one of which you definitely haven't read. That's not true. I've read lots of comics this week. This week's comics, I've only read two of. Ah, fair enough. Okay. Uh, I take it you have had a chance to read more? Uh, I read, yes. I've read a few comics that actually came out this week, and I think there's probably some stuff that I can talk about overall, thanks to the various opportunities available to us, I think. Uh, well, that sounds very exciting. <laughs> I, I also have a completely random question uh, about comics that I want to throw out at you. But let's talk about things that have come out this week. Okay. Yeah. Did you read the last issue of Casanova? I did. Did you? Yeah. I actually just bought it like half an hour ago because uh, David Brothers was talking about it on Twitter. I, I, I did the Comixology thing. Also, someone's like, it's one ninety nine in Comixology and you get everything. And I was like, yeah. that's much better than paying $5 for print. Um, yes. And it is. Good pricing. Thumbs up. Mm -hmm. uh, I really want to know what you think about it, because this is genuinely a comic where I think I read it wrong. Oh, interesting. Um, that's a good question, because my personal take on it, uh, and this is based on, as a guy who never got through book two of Casanova, and thanks to the delays, it's been a couple of months since the previous issue, which... I read, but I'm not necessarily fresh on. Um, 
So I would have to say that going into it without much of a, a sense of uh, the the finer nuances of it, I actually enjoyed it. And it, I will get around to it. One of the things that I was thinking about today, sort of in that vague, like, huh, what are, are we going to talk about this? What am I going to say? One of the things I wanted to say was that I felt that there was uh, a sequence that would not work as well in digital as it did in print. Cause I paid money for the print copy, mm-hmm. right? So there's the chapter 12. We are the dead um, is this long crazed time slowdown sequence. Uh, the, the bulk of which is um, two, four, six, seven pages using exactly the same uh, four-tiered sh- shape of um, storytelling, I guess. Mm-hmm. And it reads pretty great, I have to say, for me. My first impression of it was it was long enough to where I got over my... Um, I, I moved, I, I sort of, it, it was, I had a, I had a backlash to it and then a backlash to the backlash. So that by the end, I was actually kind of blown away um, as just, you know, the quote unquote pure comicsness of it. Um, I felt that it worked incredibly well, especially by the time the sixth or seventh page happens. Um, and so it kind of made the book for me, the, 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 epilogue such as it is which i felt like where there you know the revelation of what's happened to Cass and sort of the inversion of the formula for this book for for this uh for uh ever ever teria i don't know book three i guess um I have to say it, it worked for me so and i'm going to guess that you're you feel uh opposite Yes, no. Uh-huh. What what struck me about this, and this is the second issue of Casanova in a row that this has happened. Mm-hmm. I don't feel anything. Oh, interesting. I am left. I don't. It's not that I dislike it. I am left entirely cold mm-hmm. by this comic. All of it. Um, interesting. Everything, like everything that happens, I'm like, mm-hmm. sure, that happened. But I don't mm-hmm. have any reaction to it i'm like oh that's nice art or that's a technically nice bit right right but i have no reaction to it oh that's interesting and and it's it's really it's kind of off-putting to me (laughs) (laughs) really graham you want reactions from your comic books that seems a little like i i would rather hate it or be disappointed in it or Mm. or have a negative reaction interesting than have a lack of reaction but well, it seems so – everything about it seems so calculated to me, and I know that it's not. Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I know this is a very emotional book for Fraction. He's, he's right. very open about saying that. Right. But nothing surprises me and nothing feels honest to me. Mm-hmm. And so I, I find myself really weirdly closed off from this book. Interesting. Um, and that's what I mean. Like that's what I what I mean when I say I feel like I'm reading it wrong. Mm-hmm, <laughs> See, mm-hmm. people being like, "This is the best thing I've read in ages." This is like you know, this is the comic, and I'm reading it, and I'm just like, I, I don't get it. I mean, I I just there is literally an absence of why people are saying that to me. Uh, uh, well, okay, for myself, I do know 
that the fact that you and I felt differently about the previous issue may kind of be a factor because I felt that issue did a pretty good job of combining kind of the 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 nihilism of the first issue and the sort of pep or wit of the second issue into kind of a nice blend. And so here, what I really felt going on, um, it, it, I felt like most of it felt earned, I suppose, because what really felt like what was happening to me, and this is going to sound entirely strange, uh, because it, I I don't really know how to justify it, Mm -hmm. but I actually did read the book without feeling like with at a certain point, I felt like I was just feeling it, especially when you get to that six page, seven page sequence. And one of the things that's lovely is with it. And I mean, I'm sure I have no doubt there are other people who had their asses knocked off by it, who read it digitally. I don't think it's as simple as a one-to-one split, but I do think that for me anyway, even though I paid more coin for it, having that sequence of panels with the tiered storytelling and especially as the colors begin to, you know, literally, you know, fall apart, Mm -hmm. um, fall away from, you know, it's like meat falling off the bone, you know, just Mm -hmm. the way the colors are seeping away from the images, not, not seeping, but just (laughs) leaping away, I guess. Yeah. And it's, it's Um, also not just, I mean, I really like that, that, um, portion visually because it's not mm-hmm. just the colors everything starts shaking the light yeah. marks are shaking the balloons start shaking and That's the colors right. start right. bleeding off slightly mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and it's it it looks it looks lovely it looks really nice yeah well it looks nice but i it does make me wonder if like maybe digitally it feels weirdly more uh, e- even with that happening, it still feels a little static, but cause having it like two page by two page and then you flip it again and you get two pages that are mm-hmm. exactly like that. And then you flip it again and there's two pages like, it, except more. Um, it really does get to a weird area of just for me anyway, just pure feeling like I really just felt it. And I actually let myself, uh, kind of surrender to it. I don't know. That sounds kind of goofy. No, I no. Mean, I, and it's actually funny to me that we're having this conversation in this way because I feel like normally I'm the one who's like, I feel this comic. You're the one who's like, well, if you look at it from an intellectual and crafts point of view. Yes, and I feel exactly. Like, I feel like we flipped. Um, right. And I think it's very possible that the, having a physical object is going to be very different from the screen. It's worth saying that I think the Casanova doesn't actually read well on the screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, in large part because of what I like about the craft of Casanova, which is like the hand lettering does not really read well unless you blow mm. the page up. Oh yeah, that that could be problematic. Uh, um, and so when you but when you do that, you actually lose a lot of the page design. So I mean, you really are mm-hmm. trading off with with digital, or at least the way my monitor set up. I guess people have bigger monitors don't have that problem. Um, right, but I think it goes beyond just the the physical objects reading on screen experience. Mm-hmm. I, I think th- this was a thought I had actually before I read the, the issue. I think mm-hmm. this series of Casanova in general. I think I've out- I don't want to say outgrown Casanova. I think I'm too old for Casanova. I've grown mm-hmm. I am 
I have like evolved past that. I'm better than that. That's not what I mean. I think I'm too old for Casanova now. I think mm-hmm. Casanova has a very specific point of view that has to do with I don't know uh, the quest for self. The uh, uh, a very twenties slash thirties. Who am? Mm-hmm. What am I doing? What is my purpose in the world? Like, am I doing the right thing? Questioning your your moral choices, questioning your decisions, in a way that I think a lot of people, myself included, I guess, um, stop questioning themselves about so much as get older. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. and I feel that Casanova is very much in the. Well, I, I'm sort of hedging bets because I'm also like you're older than me, and yet you had an emotional connection. So maybe making <laughs> fast generalizations. But I think that Casanova really speaks to that experience, speaks to like a very specific um, generational experience mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. that I do not feel as connected by. I feel that if I had read this most recent run of Casanova pretty much immediately after the second volume, mm-hmm. <laughs> I would have had an entirely different reaction to it. Yeah, I think I think that makes a lot of sense to me. Um because because it is a book that you have to feel yeah 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 yeah. well and it could be and this is the thing that i think is interesting there's also the possibility as you pointed out i tend to be more of a a formalist and it may be the fact that uh fraction and team were trying to create a sense of feeling through very a very specific formalistic experience that it, it it hit my sweet spot in a way that it didn't for you. I mean, let's put it this way, because, I mean, I enjoyed it. I liked it. It was not hugely resonant for me. I actually, you know, it's like I liked it just fine. I'm glad I paid the cash for it that I did. It was it was better than a bunch of other comics that I picked up. But it is it's also not something you know, where I think somebody in, in their twenties or early thirties reads that. And it's kind of got that, that, you know, yeah, yes. Kind of feeling to it. I just thought that it was, you know, I don't have the exclamation points at the end of it. I have a, yeah, you know, it, it worked for me. It was satisfying. There was something kind of, um, you know, uh, hopeful in it for me at, uh, on a, on a multiple number of levels, I guess, um, See, that, which is, that's funny because yes. I found it a really I, I didn't like the epilogue mm-hmm. well the epilogue actually is the part that, and that was what I was going to say the epilogue is the part that actually gives me some pause you know because um, because there's a weird way in which that means nothing to me you know what i mean like the the way that it's like oh it's casanova quinn and he's in hollywood that has i can't even imagine where <laughs> yeah yeah i i got that too as well i was like i have i don't understand why i'm supposed to be interested in the next book exactly exactly i mean it just it it has some level of Unless you're looking at it in a bizarre metatextual way, I, I'm like it's 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 kind of a it's kind of a flat wet fart of an epilogue for me. And even and frankly, the idea of it being some sort of like heavily metatextual kind of like hey now he's you know, in the real world, next. yeah now he's in the real world. 
plus it's going to be fraction taken on Hollywood. You know, I'm, I'm kind of like that just kind of makes me want to throw up in my mouth a little bit to give an, to give an old school shout out, you know, <laughs> no, holla. No, I, that, that two page sequence, I was like, short of saying, look, he escaped. I don't mm-hmm. get the point of the sequence. And, but also that the sequence before that with Seychelles killing all the alternative castes in the same way that cast was killing all the alternative uh, humans at the start. Mm-hmm. I that left a, a bad taste in my mouth as well. Oh yeah, how so? It seemed it's funny. It seemed really gratuitous, which is the line of dialogue in it. Mm, mm-hmm. But it really did. I was mm-hmm. like, "What's the point? What? Why? Why?" Gee, that's funny. That's the part that I kind of liked because it seemed like because it seemed like such an inversion. Um, sure, but why? You know. Why should I care? Well, I don't necessarily know if you need to care. I mean, definitely after you see it happen like 18 times, of course, there's there's a bit of challenge of how much are you really expected to care. I mean, to me, it sort of suggests that um, uh, this section of Casanova for me, and maybe I'm completely wrong, feels like it is acknowledging kind of, and this is going to sound completely grotesque, uh, and hippie-ish, and I apologize, but the, a, con- a, a sort of a very traditional conception of karma, you know, or the wheel of fortune, I suppose. So I kind of felt like this was this arc was where the worm turned, where Casanova basically goes from being the guy who is basically the guy who stops shitting on people, and as a result of it, is the ends up being the guy who's being shit on, but in a different way than he's been shit on previously. And I don't really know. Unfortunately, with the huge, you know, blank, you know, Planet of the Apes-esque forbidden zone that is the second book of Casanova, I I can't really, I have to admit that I'm not speaking with any sort of knowledge about it. So therefore, it's just the way that it felt to me. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that it necessarily felt gratuitous as much as, it sets up the fact, you know, it's a very um, perhaps unnecessarily glib, but certainly a very glib way of setting up uh, how the showing literally how the, the tables have changed from from the very beginning of the book. But, you know, whether or not it says that you're going to care or not, and you know, it's kind of kind of up in the air. I sort of appreciated it in a. Oh, that's kind of clever and kind of a this is, you know, this is a, a turning point in the big epic. But I didn't really get a sense that um, I didn't have a real sense of feeling the turn of it, I suppose, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So the, for whatever reason, this issue of Casanova was really the part where I went, oh, you know, maybe this really is smaller piece in a bigger epic that is going to feel really satisfying when it gets wrapped up. But I don't, but I don't know. I mean, by the same token, is that going to really put us in a different place than say Grant Morrison's The Invisibles, you know, put us the first time we finished reading that, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I, I, this series of casts, This series of cast was the one where I was like, I like. It was like seeing an ex girlfriend. Mm-hmm. It was. Mm-hmm. I thought that you were great, and now I don't. 
And I don't mm-hmm. know how I feel about that. Right. Right. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I guess I, I, I have little to be able to comfort you with in that regard. Uh, you know <laughs> that, what I mean? Right. I, don't, I don't know if I was really looking for you to have an answer. I don't know. I, just, mm-hmm. I, I really had the I, – I, I have the feeling that I read it wrong. Mm. I, 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 feel, I, I feel that because everyone else had such a reaction to it, for me to mm-hmm. have no reaction to it right. is, is a failure on my part. It's, it's, yeah, it's, you know, that's, it's ridiculous. But um, it's really funny. Did you see the Twitter exchange between uh, David Brothers and myself about Cass and Zosser of Z- Zilk? No. Uh, I compared the two, and I don't know why, because he was like, Have you, we should talk about Zosser of Zilk sometime. And I was like, we definitely should. Because Zosser of Zilk, I was saying this uh, to him, I reread it last night, and like, it made me so happy about comics. I was like, comics are wonderful. This mm-hmm. has just completely re-energized my love for comics so much. Mm-hmm. Um, but for some reason, I make this connection to cast stuff. I don't know mm-hmm. why. I don't know why. Hmm. And I don't know what the connection is. But I had this weird thing of everything I wanted out of Casanova, mm-hmm. I found in Saucer of Silk. Now, just to make sure that I'm following you correctly, Zosser of Zilk is the uh, Brendan McCarthy... Valuing uh, strip from 2080. Okay. Uh, which I haven't seen yet, so... Um, yeah, I, I, it was... It was really strange. You should read Zosser of Zilk and then we should talk about it. We'll talk about it next week. Right. I've got to get my hands on a trade, or is it still being currently serialized in 2000 AD or both? I think you'll find if you send a certain email to a certain person at um, 2080, there are, is actually a PDF of all of the episodes available to press. Oh, wow. That would be amazing to see. Okay. I will, uh, I will start looking into that. Um, in fact, if you check your email that I sent you recently, <laughs> which yes. was yesterday. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, will, that, I will jump that's, in on that's that. That's what you're looking for. Um, yeah, it, it's actually all the episodes uh, in, well, in one PDF. Oh wow! Really? Yes. Holy shit! Yeah. Okay. Uh, um, so, yes, you should read because it's. I mean, it, it's nothing like Casanova. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's nothing like it. The plot right. is nowhere close. the The art is nowhere close. The tone of the writing is nowhere close. Mm-hmm. Short of they both feature young guys as lead characters, they're both kind of science fictiony. Mm-hmm. I don't see the crossover. And yet, mm. reading, thinking about Cass, all I could think of was, all of those things that I wanted from this series of Casanova, I got from Zosser of Silk. Right. Hmm. And what Casanova offered instead felt really curiously... Hollow? Old. Oh, interesting. Yes, hollow, but also hollow in a way that it was like, didn't we do this a few years ago right like aren't we aren't we past the level of woe is me mm-hmm. um, and that's again why I'm saying like maybe I, I've just I've, I've grown too old mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because gas ultimately I think the reason I don't feel it so much mm-hmm. is that it, I feel like I've 
I've gone through that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it could be. And I could just be like, I seem that apart from that pretty, pretty heavy downer first issue, the other issues have weirdly felt more up to me. Even this issue where essentially, you know, ev- everything falls apart. And yet it seems to fall apart in a way that I... I don't know, it just somehow seemed weirdly necessary and not, not necessarily. I didn't feel the negativity behind it, I suppose. I, yeah, you know? I, I just felt, I felt, no, I felt none of this issue was earned. It's funny because mm. you, you said earlier on that you felt it was all earned. I felt none of it was earned. I don't think mm. that, I think that the way that things fall apart uh, is very, relies much more on that that's what the plot needed. Mm. I mm-hmm. think that, I think that when it it kills off characters, mm-hmm. um, they're gone too early. Like they're gone far too soon mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. because you haven't really had a chance to meet any of them beyond right. like catchphrase, you know, yeah. witty line of dialogue. And so you don't care. You don't really have an emotional reaction to them going other than through Cass. And yeah. Cass as a uh, protagonist is really hard to. You can't really form an emotional attachment through him either mm-hmm. because he mm-hmm. is all about not having the emotional attachment and self-loathing. The only person Cash really loves, honestly, is himself. Mm-hmm. He, ha- he has emotional attachments to other characters, but they almost all reflect on how it makes him feel. Mm-hmm. It's like he's not sad that his dad's dying. He's sad that his dad's dying because it makes him feel sad. Does that make right. sense? Like there's a difference. Yes. Right. Um, it's a different the, – the difference is – is, of course, oh, no, my dad is dead. I'm now a person with a dead dad. Yes, you know? as opposed mm-hmm. to this man is dying. Yeah. Um, and it's the same with, with uh, his girlfriend, who's, I want to say Sasalisi, but I might be getting my character names mixed up. Mm-hmm. Um, you get the feeling that, like, her, like, what happens at the end, it's more important for him to be like, oh, no, I'm losing out again, as opposed to mm-hmm. what's actually happening. Mm-hmm. Um it's it's it. You earlier on said that you thought that there was a glibness to the the first epilogue. There's mm-hmm. a glibness to the entire comic to me, and it mm. way that's really fitting because Casanova is a glib character, and a part of the reason he's glib is that he can't he doesn't actually have the emotional tools to deal with what's happening, and so mm-hmm. glibness is his defense mechanism. Mm-hmm. But there is nothing non-glib about Casanova. Casanova has two. Two things in it, a glibness mm-hmm. and an incredibly overwrought emotionalism that it mm-hmm. explains in a glib way. <laughs> right. Right, right, right. And yeah, so, I agree. And so it's really it, – I guess by this point, I don't trust Cass as a character enough or for that mm-hmm. fraction as a writer enough right. to have an emotional connection to the book. Interesting. Yeah, I can see that actually. Uh, and and things, like, things like Kato becoming like the the avatar of death. That again is like really. I there was I, for me there was no character arc there. He did it for plot reasons. And you had like hints at a character arc. You had nods, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. not again. None of that felt earned. It felt like someone was giving you the cliff notes of a story. Right. Well, yeah, I guess that was it. I was not tuned in enough to even be aware of really who Kato is previously so this may be it it may be that um 
this comic book works best for people who, you know, wander into the theater after the movie's been playing for like two hours and catches the last 20 minutes and go, that seemed kind of awesome, you know? (laughs) No, but but that's just it. It's not. You've got all these people who've been following it from day one and they're like, that really worked for me, man. Right. So it's right. it's not it's 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 me. It is you, but that that doesn't necessarily mean, like you said, there's a whole lattice work of reasons why it may not hit you based on, like you said, anything from where you're at in your life to the way the approach is made to it. Unfortunately, all of the things that you're saying, um, I just am not was not a careful enough reader, and nor did I bother to reread such that I can say. Yes, Graham, good point. I'm basically saying, yeah, I think you're probably right. But, um, but here's the thing. Part of me's like, if you liked it, don't reread it if you think it's going to spoil it. What, what's that? If you liked it, don't go looking for reasons not to like it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, sort of. Well, that's it. I'm not necessarily taking it to heart. But, I mean, if you uh, are saying these things and I could agree, I, I was in enough of a space to agree, I could even say – well, yeah, but here's why it does or doesn't. In other words, I really wish that I could have a way to kind of help you with your frustration or your dilemma, either by saying, well, it's not just you, Graham, or saying, well, yes, it is just you, Graham. But as it is, it's kind of like having a conversation with your dog. You know what I mean? Where I'm sort of like (laughs) looking very intently at you and trying to figure out if like maybe you have some food in your pocket, you know? (laughs) Okay, why don't we talk about other comics that you've read that I haven't, and then I can feel, oh. I can feel like a dog. Okay. Uh, I mentioned this on Twitter, and unfortunately, I mentioned it incorrectly. But on Comixology, you can get the first three issues of Matt Howarth's Those Annoying Post Brothers for only 99 cents. Each issue is pretty much 31 pages. Um And I should point out, because I was thinking about it, I read the three issues because I was like, oh, I was talking about this. I should really, you know, on Twitter, but I haven't sat down and reread the issues. So I did on the iPad, read the first three. It's kind of a drag because it doesn't complete the first storyline, which wraps up, I think, in issue four, as I recall. But what is hilarious about it was I went into it thinking, okay, I'm going to read this and... sort of talked with Graham about it on how this Matt Howard's Post Brothers, his bug town, which is this ever-changing sort of shifting cityscape in which the most of the people in it are essentially immortals, but are, you know, alternate between getting in huge grandiose fistfights and being really obsessed with what band they're going to be listening to that night. I was going to talk to you about it like, hey, you know, for people who like King City, you should really see where the protogenesis of this uh, is in some ways. Yeah, you, well, you, um, you've kind of said that before. You've talked before about how. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The thing that struck me is that really works, especially in Savage Henry. Uh, but in the Post Brothers, those annoying Post Brothers, it is such a goddamn. It, it's like reading Casanova 1.0 because uh, what I forgot is. Um, those annoying post brothers are Ron and Russ Post, and who are basically merry, savage, cynical killer hitmen. And um, this was drawn by Howarth and co-written by him and Lou Stathis. Um, so there's kind of like this really weird, funny, um, like in th- in theory, according to certain degrees of time travelology, if we didn't have loose Stathis, we wouldn't have Avengers versus X Men, you know. 
because it was Lou Stathis, and I, I apologize if I'm saying his name wrong, because sure I'm sure I am, who actually hired Axel Alonso yeah. to be his assistant back at Vertigo. So Lou Stathis, who's passed on, God bless him, you know, had moved into Vertigo in part because he, I think, had co-edited Heavy Metal and had written, co-written post, Those Annoying Post Brothers. So Ron and Russ Post are um, hitmen who are able to shift through alternate realities at will. Uh, and in the first issue, there is a um, package that is dropped into the their reality, into the nightclub where they are visiting. And essentially all of the Ron Posts begin fighting each other for possession of the box. And so... While the rest of the plot is moving on and goes in all sorts of really fascinating places and shifts into different directions, it was hilarious to read this issue of Casanova, which has its reality switching shenanigans and the same characters being killed over and over and over again, and seeing an issue where literally, you know, back in like 1984, 85, you've got this, you know, sneering mustachioed hitman who is killing himself and is literally standing on piles and piles of his own bodies, comically, you know, chainsawing himself to death. Um, it's, it's weirdly like, it's very much seen, you know, in the gem of this indie of indie-ish type comics really seen where a lot of weird strains of what currently exists in our alt indie comics have blossomed into, you know, in some ways for better or for worse, it's so much more openly cartoonish than, than Casanova gets, which is kind of funny if you think about the, the, the degree of representation, but it so clearly struck me as um, kind of an important influence. And there's tons of, wonderful name dropping of various kinds. Like at one point, um, one of the ways that the Ron, because one Ron sets up ways to kill off all the other Rons. So he won't be bothered with himself anymore. Uh, there, there's an entire stage where he, he ends up sabotaging like an, an Edward Gorey cardboard cutout at a certain bookstore downtown. And just the shot of him holding Edward Gorey. And then of course, all the books, which you can, see in close up are books that are like Philip K. Gorey's Ubik, you know, or K.W. Gorey's Dr. Adder, you know, taking a lot of, you know, um, alternative science fiction titles and sort of spinning that they have been created by Edward Gorey and that Edward Gorey is booby trapped with a bomb to kill off the other characters in the book is really deeply, I mean, it's deeply odd and incredibly enjoyable. Um, so, yeah, for those people who, I guess, either dug Casanova or totally rejected it, for less than the price of most of Marvel Comics, you can get 90 pages of some amazingly influential alternative cartooning. Uh, I totally recommend it. Graham? Can you hear me? Oh, thank God, yes. <laughs> I may have um, put myself on mute and not realized, which is very funny. Um, <sighs> have you read Hickman's Fantastic Four? Oh, no. Well, of course, the opening arc. But yeah, of course, all those goddamn alternate reads. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's when you were talking about one 
Ron comes up with a plan to kill all the other Rons. I was like, yeah, just like Regan Smith. I wonder if Hickman and Fraction have read the Annoying Post Brothers. I know. Like, I wonder if this is a, a weird coincidence. Right. Right. Is it? Or is it just, or yeah, or is it conscious influence? I mean, it's really, I mean, I was reading it. I was incredibly struck. Fairly, yeah, that's fairly blatant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That, that's, that's really crazy. That that's really interesting. Yeah. Now maybe maybe a completely unconscious influence in a way. I, I suppose because it's not like, mm, you know, when ha- Matt Howarth was doing this stuff in '85 and I was reading it, it's not. It seemed so different. I wasn't really thinking of it like, oh, Earth One, Ron kills off Earth Two and Earth Three and Earth Shazam Ron. You know, but why not? You know what I mean? Like it sort of seems like. As much as I, as much as I would love to think that I stumbled on some huge, huge influence, and in, in Hickman and Fraction are both kind of going, "Oh well, hell, you caught us." I sort of feel like there's something weird about the nature of serialized comic books that ends up sort of playing with the mirror-like nature of that. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's very possible that everyone took it from the same thing, and the same thing is like a Roy Thomas story way back when. Well, or you know I mean? Gardner or, F. Fox's or Gardner Flash Gardner of Fox. Two Worlds. Yeah. Or Gardner Fox's Justice League. There's, what, maybe the second or third Justice League, Justice Society crossover, has mm-hmm. Johnny Thunder of One World sticking on the Johnny Thunder of Another World. Right. Right, exactly. Do you know what I mean? mean? Like, so it's yeah. it's really possible they they both took their influence there, but then took it to the same place. Yeah, but completely independently of each other. Exactly, exactly. No, it's it's a it's a it's a it's a weird thing. I I guess you know if you you know we're trying to be like a smart high flutin you know theorist, you would say that the medium of the comics, that the serial nature of the comics essentially creates the kind of creative anxiety, I suppose, that creates stories in which um, a character has to face his own mirror image because literally you've got, you know, either 30 copies of the same issue of Batman on a shelf or you've got 30 issues of Batman, you know, in your long box. And the idea that those are separate characters, especially when you've got separate writers, you know, it puts you on that path. Mm -hmm. So... Because, I mean, like, uh, as you know, we both adore the Engelhart's Captain America. And one of the great things that he kicked it off with was resolving that that weirdo, like, where what was up with the Captain America of the 50s, you know? Yeah. Like, rather than just sweeping that under the rug, he's like, oh, I'm going to explain how that works in this, con- you know, in this current continuity. And it's going to create uh, a, a new level of definition for who this Captain America is, you know? And that's... Uh, you know, it it almost feels like that's sort of the, you know, classic – I'm starting to think that's sort of the classic rock riff of serialized comics now, you know? It's like, you know, the the, the whatever it is. What 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 somebody reading Casanova would go, the dit, dit, da, dit, dit, you know, of, of comic – of serialized comic books. Mm-hmm. So. That's kind of – that's – now I'm like, well, I have to read the Post Brothers now. But I, I'm also, I'm always fascinated when the same story comes up and the same story comes up seemingly accidentally. I mean, do you remember the whole, yeah. we call it idea space thing that, you know, the early yes. 2000s brought about where I was like, yeah, everything comes from the same place. And sometimes you just tap in the concurrent currents, man. Right. You know, that 
is embarrassing bullshit way of putting it, but <laughs> what well, is idea space really? But there, it really is. It, it always fascinates me that people can come up with exactly the same idea entirely independently. I, I've yeah. always, I've always found that kind of both wonderful and really depressing. <laughs> <laughs> No, but you know what I mean? Like, it's wonderful that, that such coincidence can happen. It's mm-hmm. depressing that the imagination can, I don't know, repeat itself isn't the, isn't the right way of putting it. Sure. But in, sure. The, infinite, in the infinity of imagination, mm-hmm. that the same idea will occur to a couple of people, mm-hmm. there's something somehow weirdly upsetting to me about that. Well, I mean, I, I can see it because it puts. Um, it suggests it, there. It suggests there is a limit. Yeah, basically, it slots imagination within the realm of statistics. Yeah, you know exactly. I mean? Yeah, because no, because you know, the defense will be, "Oh, what are the odds?" And you kind of want to be like, "Why does there have to be odds?" <laughs> right, People thinking exactly. of ideas. Why? Right. Exactly. Well, and it could be, I mean, because as you narrow the range of what you're thinking of, you know, it's one of the, both the the delights and the the frustration of it is, you know, as you narrow the limits of what you're thinking about it, it, you're necessarily narrowing the possibilities. So what's exciting is when you can get somebody who is thinking inside that range, you know, and can come up with something new, you know, like in theory, coming up with something new is easy as hell, but coming up with, you know, a new Batman story after this point is clearly something that, that Grant Morrison wants to do and, and feels a, a, a particular form of accomplishment with, but if nothing else, it's sort of like, um, it's just, I'm just think of it as like thinking in the same key. You know what I mean? Like if, if, if you're just in one key of music, a lot of the two, all of the tunes that everyone's flowing out, you're going to have people where the composition's going to sound more similar than not, just as a result of it. You know what I mean? But mm-hmm. um, you know, I think, and I think that uh, really happens to be the case when you, again, you're applied to something where it gets, you know, you apply it to to sequential serial serialized comic books, then you get that, and then if you narrow it even further to the realm of superheroes. Then suddenly it's batting back and forth all over the place because you start getting, you know, weird things like, you know, Superman analogs as a way to explore Superman stories that you couldn't tell otherwise, you know. Mm-hmm. And then so it again just feels like this weirdly it's the same but different, you know, but really mostly the same kind of way of thinking about things. I have a question to ask you about analogs that just you remind me of by talking about Superman analogs then. Ooh, okay. When did copying character become something that was not just valid but applauded? Well, that's – I mean that's a what, really good question. What brought this up is the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen thing. Yes. Where they're like, it's Harry Potter, but it's not really Harry Potter, but it's clearly Harry Potter. <laughs> and people – like I, um, what I found spectacular was there was a backlash to it with everyone being like, well, before what? And then there was a backlash to the backlash where everyone's like, but it's not, because it's not Harry Potter. It's a copy of Harry Potter. And I was like, that's your defense? <laughs> your defense is it's a copy of Harry Potter and that's okay? Like, that kind of blew my mind. Because mm-hmm. I understand the point. I understand the point of, well, it's a commentary on. It's mm-hmm. a satire. But at the same mm-hmm. time, the idea of the defense being, it's a copy. Mm-hmm. 
there's that really does blow my mind. I, I don't like when did that become okay? When when did it become reasonable to create analogs? Because it is now. Do you know well, what I mean? It really genuinely is. You can be like, right. well, you know, I've created whoever, Apollo, to do mm-hmm. all the things that I can't, that you can't do with Superman. Like, at right. what point did that become fine? Uh, at what point did that become, what was the word? Fine. What, oh, uh, fine. What? For some reason, the, the it cut out, and I was like, did he say five bean? I don't, yes. you know, because it was like... At what point did that become? No, but you know what I mean? Like, there, there, there is some sort of validity Right. To creating an analog now? Yes. Uh, and I, that's, when did that's that start? Question. And and hmm. why? Like, why is, why is that okay? Why can we not just be like, no? <laughs> well, or, there's, there's or, a couple or, of good questions about that. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I mean, because, you know, as you know, the comics industry, the thing was... <laughs> was such a ridiculous, cheap, fly-by-night sort of situation that it seems like no longer, you know, once Batman was successful, I'm sure people were like, mm, Owlman must be super awesome. Exactly. You know? Mouseman. Exactly. Like, this guy won't. He'll crawl through the floorboards instead of swinging through the window. Exactly. You know, Superb Man and Crash Hogan. And, you know, I mean, that's... But, but all of those... But those... Um, the characters that were just copies and didn't have anything to differentiate them. And anything right. could be as vague as, you know, Captain Marvel gets his power, his magical, and he gets his power from the gods as opposed to being an alien. Right. Um, and it didn't have those. They fell by the wayside. Mm-hmm. Most and of felt, them did. I felt mm-hmm. like we then entered a period where it was like, no, come up with something original. Right. It's familiar enough to sell, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. original enough to seem innovative. Right. And then at some point, that fell away. And right. it became, this guy's just like your favorite guy, but cooler. <laughs> right, right. Well, my my theory would be that, that once, excuse me, uh, you know, 20 or 30 years into uh, a or maybe even longer, maybe it's closer to 40 years. But there, there's a point at which the property becomes so ossified and protected and quote-unquote safe that that essentially the desire to do something or say something with that character is blocked, and then you create another character. Now, admittedly, it's one thing when it's just like, yeah, this guy is Superman, but cooler, like, I don't think that, you know, to his credit, for example, and I'm not saying that you are, I don't think either of us are. I don't think that, um, that Ellis's interest in creating Apollo and the Midnighter was like, Hey, I'm going to create Batman and Superman, but they're gay for each other. You know what I mean? Like he just, Oh, I, I, I kind of do. <laughs> I maybe, maybe in which case I, I, I totally fell for it. I mean, I don't doubt that that's something that probably, you know, because I don't feel like he was pretty low key about it. I think it was once Miller was, you know, was well, they, like they, they became gayness became the entire point of them when Miller took over. Right. But I I think there was a lot of Ennis's original intent, which is I'm going to create alternates of these characters that are very recognizably the original characters, mm-hmm. but different in ways that will make you question things about the original characters. And so I think right. that but they gave. For each other was definitely a large part of that. 
Oh, interesting. Whereas to me, the idea that these guys are going to essentially become crypto fascists, you know, was more of Ellis's. Whereas Millar's like, oh, let me add them. I've got a hot tub scene for them, boy. You know, and I, I you know, I, I could be I could be completely wrong in that. It could be at least for myself in my own reading. Ellis was it, it wasn't until toward the very end of his time with the characters that he was kind of like, yeah, OK, people keep asking they're gay. But so what? You know, I, I think I, I do think that he did create them with the idea of saying things. Um, but I think that's it. I think there's something where it's like I felt like he had something that he wanted to say. He wasn't just like, oh, but they're going to be awesome. It was more like the idea of like, yeah, I want to talk about superheroes and how superheroes should be inherently fascistic as a concept. And either why aren't they or why shouldn't they be, you know? Um, and I, and I, to me, I think, I, you know, I kind of, I dig analogs for that reason. I, I do like the idea of being able to take a character, turn it into something else, and then use it Hopefully, if you do it well, it actually stands out on their own, you know. Um, and if it doesn't, I feel like they just generally tend to fall apart or are forgotten about. But as for when it be- became okay, I mean, I do feel, and this is the problem, I haven't read Moore's, you know, that that last book of, of Leave Go of Extraordinary Gentleman <laughs> Century. Oh, yeah, neither have I. And I should point out that I think the, what Moore's doing, if Moore's doing what he's reportedly doing... Mm-hmm. Is for my money the the acceptable best. way well, yeah, to the do it, or yeah. the most valid way, which is essentially mm-hmm. do it once. Like it's not a recurring character; you do it once to make the point, and then you're done. Right? Do you know what I mean? Like if he then went, "Oh, I'm doing Harold Potter the monthly comic," mm-hmm. that, that would be something else. Right. But yeah, but I mean, for myself, as a guy who part of what I love about comics, when I fell in love with comics in the 70s, it had that idea of like, wow, why is Superman, you know, being punched in the cock by Zardoz? You know what I mean? Or or even just weird, like, why in the name of God is this Deathlock uh, chapter titled after a Frank Sinatra movie? You know, like, why does Deathlock exist? Why why does Deathlock exist? Why? You know, I mean, and I love Deathlock, but, you know, but there were various levels where at the at some level there was a certain amount of people going like, well, I want to tell a story about Steranko and I like bionics and I like zombies. So if I put them all together, brother, it's going to sell a million, you know, and I, 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 I think I like the idea. In theory, a lot of us go on and on about how comics are like you know, creativity's R&D, you know, or some bullshit like that. I do like the idea that, you know, it is a place for the imagination to run wild. It It's not it's not imagination's fault that most of our imaginations are shit. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Yeah, but I, I, A, I completely agree with you about the it's, it's the place for the imagination to run wild. I guess mm-hmm. what I'm getting at is when did we accept... When do we accept the idea that imagination could run wild as long as imagination runs wild using the characters that we already have, but right. with different names? Right. Well, Because to me, the analog defeats mm-hmm. – well, it doesn't defeat, but it definitely waters down the concept of imagination run wild. Do you know what I mean? Because it's right. like, it's Superman, but he's gay, or it's Harry Potter, but he shoots lightning out his penis. 
maybe imagine it. Write that down, by the way. Write that down. Hey, no, that's that's the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen thing. No way. He's got lightning coming out of his penis. Why didn't anyone tell me this before? Jesus. All right. Apparently apparently he does. Um, Yeah, that's not that's not mine. That's the the magical mind of Alan Moore right there. Alan Moore, you have made a sale. Congratulations, sir. Uh, Um, No, but you know what I mean? Like, that's not imaginative. It's imaginative mm-hmm. to a level, but it's still like, hey, what if this guy who exists did something he wouldn't do? Right. Like that. Well, that's. But that to me is. What I is, what is that significant? But what is the significant difference between that and someone who watches CSI every week and says, "Wouldn't it be great if Lawrence Fishburne fucked a fish?" Yes, and then wrote some awesome um, fanfic about it, or Johnny. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, I'm like. Graham, are you talking about Johnny Ryan or are you talking about the fan fiction community? No, but you know, I I am. I'm talking about both. Yes, you are. You are. But but they they serve different purposes. Right. Johnny Ryan does it like Moore is doing it one Mm -hmm. time as a joke, for want of a better way of putting it. Although I don't think Alan Moore is doing it as a joke. Gallagher thinks he's making a point, and that saddens me. <laughs> I was about to say, extent, such an extent, I can't tell you. Uh, Alan Moore may not be aware who the joke's really on. Yeah, point, no, but it, like, yeah. It, if the reviews or the the Lars Neden review is is correct, if it's a if it's a correct reading of what he's mm-hmm. trying to do, I can't tell you how sad I am. Um, like John Ray does it for joke. Alan Moore does it to make a point about culture, man. Mm-hmm. Um, fan fiction does it to please themselves. Right. But, for example, you know, uh, Miracle Man or mm-hmm. The Authority or, or you know, whatever Batman analog you want mm-hmm. uh, is it's doing something else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's presenting as uh, a valid individual narrative. Right. Well, I don't know. I I find. Yeah, no, 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 no. Right. I see your point. And it's exactly. And I'm, Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm looking to you to answer this as much as I'm just raising these questions. I've been having a lot of questions about comics this week. Can you? (laughs) I can't tell. My goodness. I've got another one. Yes. What's the point of a first issue in modern superhero comics? Oh, God. Uh, Honestly, I am. That is that is the greatest rhetorical question ever because you can't really answer it in any satisfactory way, you know. Yeah, because of, I've I've, been, I've literally been struggling with this since we last spoke because yeah. I decided I thought it was really funny that you wrote something for Savage Critic this week. I have mm-hmm. over a thousand of Spider-Man one review unfinished. Really? Um, yeah, because I keep struggling with that question because. Mm. It, uh, you saw Tom Brevoort on Twitter be like, why is no one really reviewing comics from a craft level? Oh, yeah. I was like, he, I hated Spider-Man 1, and it's not because I did Bendis. I hate it because it fails on almost every single level of comic, and I'm going to write that. Mm-hmm. And I, I got like halfway through a thousand words. This is a long fucking piece. Um, yeah. And I was kind of like, it entirely, it entirely fails as a first issue mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it relies on so many outside things, including mm-hmm. the fact that everyone knows who all the characters are. Everyone cares about the characters. Everyone knows what the story is. Right. It's, it's the only way it has dramatic impact. And then it's mm-hmm. like, 
but maybe that's what a first issue of a Marvel comic does now. You know, I mean, this is the problem. I, you can ask someone like Tom Brevoort, and he'll he'll more or less admit at certain points that the that for him the point of a first issue is to get more people to look at it. You know what I mean? Like it's a way to get an a. Uh, uh, it's a way that the market responds so that you can get a bump in sales so that when you're doing something that either you feel is worthy of attention or is time to signal a new start, or it's just the numbers have slipped to a certain below a certain level and you need to restart them, um, that's what you do. And so, you know, I... I I, I think that, of course, I was unbelievably annoyed when Tom Brevoort was like, gee, does anyone know who's writing comic book reviews these days? Stuck, trust, I was like, don't, please don't talk. That's the biggest fucking trolliest troll trolling ever to me. Like, maybe he really was. Oh, yeah, that's just I didn't think it was trolling at all. How? Uh, I well okay. you were going to say how could you how could you not how could well no no it was more like how could he not know I mean apart from the fact of easy either so oh, absolutely no. incredibly oh, insular he, in his little he, bubble you revealed it because I said something along I responded something along the lines of I think these days that's mostly been replaced by people offering co- offering commentary and he mm-hmm. said I can get commentary anywhere mm-hmm. and I think that's his thing I think he ignores reviews. That do mm-hmm. specifically go. The writing is flawed because the art is flawed because I think reviews that end, that have people saying, "Well, this is not working because this is how I feel about the comics industry and this particular creator and this particular comic." He's like, "Oh, that's an opinion piece. I don't have to listen to that." Interesting. He, I think he wants something that literally is like, you know, Avengers versus X Men issue six. This is a thirty-six page comic. It mm-hmm. quite clearly sets out to do this. In that respect, it is successful or unsuccessful. The panel-to-panel breakdown for the artist shows blah, blah, blah. And that's sure. partially what I tried to do in the Spider-Man thing that will forever remain incomplete. Uh, right. No, but well, it, because I, th- I think there is, like, uh, well, that's why I'm sort of like, Graham, you're falling into his trap, you know, because I feel like there is, like, commentary. First off, I feel most of the people who offer commentary, like, even when you have someone who's like, I picked this up and it was more of the same fucking Brian Bendis bullshit, for example, it may sound like commentary, but I honestly believe in my heart of hearts because I feel like as someone who has tried, you know, who is, you pick up something and when you're pleasantly surprised, I think generally most people are happy to say so. Like, I could be wrong. Maybe it's a grand conspiracy, but God knows, I, you know, it's something that I, I, but what I think is helpful is by putting it through the prism of who I am, um, it actually allows a feeling of, I, I feel like that subjectivity helps the reader figure out where you're coming from and how valid your take is going to be for them. You know what I mean? Two things in response to that. Uh Number one, I'm only falling for Tom Brevoort's trap if I agree with them, which I don't. I actually agree with you. Okay. And two, what you're describing is Mm -hmm. exactly the sort of thing that a lot of creators have argued against as invalid reviews in the past because yeah. for well not because but in the in the sense of and this happened for uh i want to say it was ben a lot of people basically along the lines of 
if I see the word I in a review, mm-hmm. it's not a good review. Do you remember that? Do you remember like there's a period of people mm. being really vehemently, you know, meh is not an accurate review. If I see you put your own personal viewpoint into this, you have invalidated it. And I think they were looking for some sort of objective, uh, sorry, subjective, um, I don't know, analysis of something's worth, which I don't think is what a review is or should be. Right. Do you know what I'm, like, I, I was reading Maureen Ryan's review of the newsroom mm-hmm. yesterday. Have you seen it? No, I've heard or, that it's pretty smashing. Oh, it's, it's astonishing. It, it, she literally is like the start is pretty much her going, this is a shitty show. This is, this is the shittiest show that you can imagine a shitty show being. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you why in great detail. Right. Um, she is all through that piece. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There is no way you can point to that and say that is a subjective review. Right. But – or objective. I always get objective and subjective mixed up. Am I getting right, right. mixed up here? I think you are. I think I you're am. saying there's no way it could be an objective. That's, that's what I'm saying. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't – I don't – that doesn't make it invalid. No, exactly. Graham, so this is my thing. Like, I totally see where you're going at, but my thing is, and God bless them, they will insist otherwise, and I I can't blame them. But if fucking Wile E. Coyote said that the only valid Roadrunner is the one on my dinner plate, you would not be inclined to agree. You know what I mean? Like... (laughs) I am sorry, creators. I know you are going to fucking hate critics as long as critics say anything other than I loved it. You are great. And I don't really even mean that. And of course, you don't want your asses kissed emptily. You would actually love for them to sit down and prove why you are fantastic with graphs. You know, I mean, I think that's why, you know, the classic Paul O'Brien's like, I can prove it to you with graphs struck a really, you know, it became a little bit of a, a, a frequently quoted meme, you know, for certain levels of comic reviewers. God knows it pops into my head all the time because it's funny because you can never prove anything with graphs. You can sit down and take the time to, to you know, there's been some amazing that guy who did the uh, uh, hilarious takedown of Rob Liefeld's drawing and what's wrong with it. The classic 41 things wrong with Rob Liefeld or whatever it is. That was an amazing essay. He, you know, Rob Liefeld is never going to read that and go, well, you know, like maybe he will, maybe when he's really drunk and crying alone at night, you know, Rob Liefeld looks that up and is like, Oh my God, he's right. I can't fucking draw elbows. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter. Like the best you can do is try and talk about why a a piece worked for you, you know, or didn't any, you know, the fact that Tom Brevoort, Tom Brevoort is not a, you know, if maybe I'm wrong, maybe this guy actually has a doctorate in literature. But let me tell you, most of the, where the, is my understanding of where people in the literary field stand is you've got, you know, a critic. Once you read the work, it becomes yours. You know, you are a co-creator of the work. Well, not all people believe this, of course, but you know, it makes sense. You do the work of reading this thing that somebody else did the work of writing. That means that you are uncomfortable work partners. You're very much like I mentioned, Wiley Coyote and um, the Roadrunner. It's really more like Ralph Wolf and that goddamn sheepdog, you know, except they never get a chance to both punch out and then go have a drink together because you're always 
participating in the act of creating this thing. And when one of you says, you're not doing such an awesome job here, the other one's like, you know, shut the fuck up. What the fuck are you doing? You're just buying it and reading it. You know, maybe you should be smarter. Maybe you should be more objective. Maybe you should really read it more clearly because you didn't see what was going on when I put it out there. And then sometimes if you're lucky and you can actually catch them, no one in print is going to say, yeah, well, you caught me. I had like two nights to write that. And frankly, I was high on cough syrup. You can occasionally get a creator to admit that. They're like, yeah, I fucked, yeah, I sort of pooped that out of my ass for the cash. But most people won't because, you know, it leads, it means that they don't lead work. But you can't let, I, God bless them. You're not ever going to be able to please a creator on what a definition is of what a critic is because they're always going to be like, nah, I can't really believe you on that. You know, and it's like, of course you can't, because if you really honestly believed what we were saying, you're in a very precarious situation. One result of which is that you can no longer create. So what you're saying is I wasted my time writing those thousand words. No, I think you should finish those thousand words. I, I do think that trying to write it in a way that Tom Brevoort accepts it as like, oh, yes, well, that's valid. You know, it's never going to fucking happen. But, the, the, no, but this is what reasons, happened. I actually know. know if if he even responded to it, I know mm -hmm. what his response would be. It would be, yeah. sorry, it didn't work for you. Right. The end. No, I know. Exactly. I know. It was literally one of those. It was a, I, I can, this is a terrible comic and I can prove it with graph moments. Because mm -hmm. there is so much wrong with Spider-Man. <laughs> yeah, and it was it's worth like, talking about. This, this, mm -hmm. this, is, this is actually embarrassing that Marvel is asking people to pay three ninety nine, and more to the point it's embarrassing that so many sites reviewed it and clearly didn't like it and were disappointed in it and went yeah. out of the way not to say it yeah 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 which is a shit that is a shame Let, do, do you mind asking uh, can I ask specific sites that you thought did that or is that not I, I would say I would say almost all of them I would say everyone who used the code of, of um this is really Sarah Pacelli's book. Mm -hmm. I think, in unless they are being remarkably kind, mm -hmm. I I think that's a, a quiet admission that Ben is completely fucked up the writing. A lot of people yeah. said things like, "It's a really slow start, but obviously it's going to pick up later." And it's really Sarah Pacelli's book, which I think is a really polite way of saying this is terribly written. Yeah, this is terribly written because. Because that's the thing. And again, that is, you know, you can get the generous version of that. But I, I do think there's oh, there's so many weird ways. Um, comics in so many ways were so much. It was so much easier to talk about them when they only got published once. You know what I mean? Like back before there was the concept of writing for the trade because there was no trade paperback. You know, you could yeah. you could talk about how a story worked on its own and that was super super valid you know what i mean because because even if you got all six issues and read them together that was still different you were still buying six issues you weren't but actually buying one story sort of this, this is funny so in my review, i also make the point of even in the collection this is an unsatisfying chunk see and that i think is 
that I mean, that is the the problem is is I believe that that is should be a perfectly satisfactory kill shot. But of course, again, somebody like Tom Brevoort is going to be like, well, how do you know? You haven't read the next five issues. You haven't read the next. Oh no, no, I know. No, I'm not looking for validation from Brevoort. I'm just looking to respond to Brevoort. Right. Because I am a masochist. Uh, I'm so much of a masochist that I am actually trying to get in contact with Dan Slott on Twitter for a time piece. <laughs> oh, I saw that about the old Parker uh, Luck. Yeah, uh-huh. I'm, I'm really that's gonna that's gonna hurt. Now, just out of curiosity, do do you mind talking about why you want to write about that, or is it something? That yeah, I'm writing. I'm on? writing about the Amazing Spider-Man movie coming out, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the fact that in Spider-Man's 50th anniversary year, mm-hmm. he has the third most eagerly anticipated superhero movie coming out this year right. uh, that is currently tracking to make less than Spider-Man 2 or Spider-Man 3 in its opening. Wow. Um, really? And the hook is basically like, you know, Peter Parker classically has the old Parker luck, which is, you know, all of his luck is bad. And right. that seems to have happened to the character in pop culture. Like, mm. he has been eclipsed. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of crazy if you think about for years, for decades, Spider-Man was the face of Marvel. And now because mm-hmm. Marvel doesn't own the Spider-Man movie, right? Right. He's been replaced. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it is – actually, you know what's great is, is you could make a – because my whole thing is is that um, you could make an argument that uh, – that, that, the re- this reason, this failure really does fall into like that strange level of the old Parker luck, which is to say it's like crazy amounts of coincidence and a bad romance, you know? Cause yeah, I mean, I- if you think about it, it's, it's the good luck that went bad. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the fact that he had the movie first. <laughs> right. Do you know what I mean? And the movie was successful. Because, yeah. I mean, that same could have been true of the Hulk, but the Hulk's movie flopped. And so the Hulk gets to be in the Avengers. Do you know what I mean? Right. There really is a everything you think is great luck for him, right? Also, it's in fact terrible. He's a real character. Yeah. yeah, it turns mm-hmm. out turns out in the long run not to be. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, it, it, so yeah, that was why. But I I really want to talk to Slot for two reasons. One, to get actually a history of the old Parker luck as a concept in the comics. You know, when mm-hmm. first when did it first get talked about? You know, when mm-hmm. when did it first appear? I, David Brothers said on Twitter that like it's essentially been retconned that his father coined it. <laughs> like oh, his father hilarious. had the old Parker luck. You know, and mm-hmm. that sort of, that sort of commentary I find really interesting. But also I want to talk about to slot about where he sees the Spider-Man comics these days. Because mm-hmm. I mean Marvel is putting some effort behind it. They just finished the Ends of the Earth thing, which was meant to be a big deal. They did Spider Island last year. They've got the the seven hundredth issue and, and the anniversary issue coming up this year. But right. at the same time, Spider-Man is kind of absent within Avengers vs. X-Men, which is the big push. Mm-hmm. And so you have this weird thing that like he's the best-selling solo character in Marvel, but that's kind of like being the shortest midget because Marvel is actually a company based on teams. Right. Right. Well, it is now, certainly. Um... And so it, 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 like, it, I'd love to know – and again, talking to the guy who's writing the Spider-Man book, you're right. only going to get the upbeat – He's never going to be, I get frustrated because blah. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. It's it's kind of fascinating. I, um, I uh, it's, a, it's a really good question, Graham. 
Cause I mean, I mean for him and, and cause I don't, interestingly enough, like not paying attention to things. I kind of had that feeling of Spider-Man has kind of like, he holds up incredibly well. I think, you know, Spider-Man still travels. He's not like, um, well, I think, you know, I think we, I talked about this, I think with you where like back in the seventies, you had the thing, you know what I mean? Like the thing was one of the Marvel's most popular characters, I would say through the sixties and the seventies. And then basically Wolverine came along and, and that was it. You know what I mean? Like the thing as the, the, basically the cigar smoking mascot, you know, became the, you know, became Wolverine, I feel. Um, well, I think and, that, that also shifts, that also points to like an audience shift as to what it wants from its heroes. Mm-hmm. It wants, right. it wanted less cuddly, you know, comfortable mm-hmm. things and wanted like the danger. Right. Which if you think about it, Ben Grimm originally was, you know, I mean, as we've talked about, one of the things that's really fascinating about Ben Grimm is watching his arc from the most dangerous character in the comic to essentially being this figure of pathos to kind of become an everybody's cuddly pal. And interestingly enough, he went from being kind of the, like, I would say that that, that really the thing to Wolverine is a pretty easy and natural transition well, that well, then just becomes stranger as 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 Wolverine himself metamorphosizes. Yeah, that, that's what I was going to say. The thing started mm-hmm. off as a proto-Wolverine. Yes, And then exactly. became cuddly and was replaced by Wolverine, who then became the thing. Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. Like, there, there's an evolution for Marvel characters where they start as the dangerous, oh, you don't know what he's going to do. Right. And then they become, and then it becomes, but he has a heart of gold. Right, and then, and then becomes he becomes every the heart of, yeah. The heart of gold mm-hmm. has really taken him over, and I, yeah. you know everyone can trust him. Everyone can open up to him. Exactly, exactly. And then they become defined, and so you have to have the next one. And you know you could say that happened with Wolverine, and he got replaced by Venom. Right, but the thing with Venom is you can't make him cuddly. Right, like you and- actually can. You break the character in a way that you don't break the character with the thing of Wolverine, because mm-hmm. Venom's actually crossed the step. To the point where he is a murderer. You could make that argument with Wolverine, but they kind of back away from that. With he only kills for you know honor, right? Well, but where you, that- you can't make that argument with, with Venom, you're like he's a big, scary, fucking monster, right? Who's who's into eating brains? Uh, but Whereas- they tried again. They tried and they laid. They out. did try, didn't they? Yeah, so and I think they, they were sort of shocked they didn't get pulled and the off. Are just like no. <laughs> <laughs> But they did try. Like it, it's really mm-hmm. strange because mm-hmm. I don't know what they would have done to replace Venom had that worked. Do you know what I mean? Right. Then it becomes right. here's a pedophile. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Right. No, I totally get it. Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. you know, mm-hmm. it's the Punisher, but it's the pedophile Punisher. Right. And then it would turn into well, the reason he's a pedophile is he just loves kids. <laughs> And then he's fucking opening an orphanage or teaching me or something. Right, right, exactly. Well, I think the thing that's hilarious is Marvel has, um, 
it became moot, like it didn't work with Venom. What I feel happened is they essentially bifurcated Wolverine such that you can have the titles where he's like, oh, he goes to hell and uh, he stabs his own dad and uh, all the children of his own that he's killed. And also like, oh, here he is. And he's having comical hijinks with kids who adore him because he's Wolverine. Oh, yeah, exactly. You, know? you do. Because at the same time, you've got like Jason Aaron being like, you know, Wolverine is a tortured samurai. And it's like, mm-hmm. don't forget next week, Wolverine and Power Pack. Yeah. And that's, it's the same writer. He seems entirely comfortable being like, oh, switch that, and oh, switch that. And it's kind of like, I'm shocked in a way that it works. And I'm not entirely sure that it does actually based on sales, mind you. Um, the other thing is, it's what it is, is it's the Batman thing. But whereas for Batman, it happened over like, you know, five decades. For Wolverine, right. it happened in like two years. <laughs> but, but you you know, the Wolverine, like Marvel and, and the Wolverine writers and everything have mm-hmm. the defense of, well, look at Batman. Mm-hmm. You know, it's proven that character can be so multifaceted that they can do Dark Knight Returns and Adam West and whatever, you know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Brave and the Bold. Right. So, they, so why can't we do it with Wolverine? And that's when critics kind of get, you know, put on the wrong foot. They're like, well, I, I guess, sure. Right. And they missed the point that, you know, this took a long time. And there were lots of steps in between. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think Marvel, for its own DC, more or less has an awareness of like, yeah, we will pull out the Adam West Batman when it's appropriate. But it's a general rule of thumb. I feel like they're aware of the sort of Batman and the Batman that sells, I think, you know, which is closer to the other one. Whereas the thing that's amazing to me is you literally get two different Wolverines in the same universe by the same writer on the same stand, you know, in issues that more or less cross over with each other. And, you know, like I said, in theory that works. Um, But weirdly, what I was going to say is that I feel that Spider-Man is, has, seems to have a better track record than that. I still feel that like, you know, and I'm not a sports guy at all, but like if you had, you know, uh, an older player on your baseball team that was as consistent as Spider-Man was, I think you'd be incredibly healthy. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think the argument has to be that Spider-Man is broken. I think Spider-Man is unlucky. Because you've got Mm -hmm. things like Ultimate Spider-Man, which is a success. You Mm -hmm. know, by that, I mean the cartoon show. Um, Yeah. Oh, right. Good point. You know, and so he's still, you know, Amazing Spider-Man is on track to make $125 million in his opening weekend. It's going Mm -hmm. to be apparently the second most successful opening this summer. Mm -hmm. So it's not like it's a flop. Right. It's just one of those, how did he go from being number one to being, you know, number three? Right. And And it's not because anyone has mismanaged the property. Oh, you don't think so? See, I would totally disagree with you, man. I mean, who, who's who's mismanaged it? Well, all right. Like, do you My, think Sony have by with the reboot? Do you think that? Yeah, I think I think the reboot was a bad choice. I uh, I think here's the reboot's my too soon, but I'm not sure it was a yes. bad choice. Well, that's what I mean. Is is that it's too soon? It's not a bad choice because of the other bad choices that they made. And my personal feeling is a Tobey Maguire was a huge mistake. Mm-hmm. B, letting Tobey Maguire and Kristen Dunst get it on, you know, like not tasering each of them in the genitals such that they never got near each other was a huge mistake because it's clear to me anyway, and maybe maybe everyone's going to tell me I'm mind reading and wrong, which fair enough. It's, it seemed to me that 
Kristen Dunst so clearly loathed Tobey Maguire by the way time of the third movie that there's no way like if you watch that movie they that it's almost as if the entire thing is like how do we have scenes where it's clear she really looks at him like he's unclean and disgusting all the time the problem is is she can barely sort of act enough when he's normal Peter that it's not the case like that is that it is clear it was this huge i mean you had Spider-Man 2. They technically fired Tobey Maguire because they weren't going to put up with his fucking shit. And he had to do all these weird workarounds to try and get back into the movie. That to me, that says that you have got, you made some mistakes real early on in the casting. If you were, had essentially fired your lead by the time of the very first sequel, that to me shows that, yeah, something has gone remarkably screwy so i think they were very by the time of the third movie it became apparent to them that a they couldn't make another movie with that peter parker and that mary jane you know they had a situation where they had hired a director that they wanted precisely for his distinctive vision you know and his love of marvel comics and then was fighting them when it came time to put in the era of Marvel comics that he had no interest in. You know, I feel like there was a lot of cumulative mistakes such that the reboot seemed like a really good idea to clear the decks for all of that stuff. But as you pointed out, it's way too soon. You know, it is Spider-Man to the extent that he's existed in the consciousness of the movie going public is not like James Bond where you can swap him out after seven movies or like, Batman, yeah, but, but here's know? the thing. I think you could have swapped him out. I think the problem is actually doing a reboot. I think if oh, they'd just gone, it's a new Spider-Man movie, Andrew Garfield's right. Spider-Man now, that would have been one thing. Saying, and we're doing the origin story again? Yeah, that is a huge mistake. Yeah, th- I agree. That w- That is just a massive boner. Because people are like, I remember the origin. Why do I need an origin again? Yeah, you know? pretty much. Like, I, I, I think they really limited their audience with that. Yeah, but, I think so yeah, too. Uh, well, we'll see. Anyway, that's why I wanted to talk to Dan Slot. <laughs> um, to get way back to the thing. So, yes, that's why I'm a masochist. So, quick, we, we've, we've got like 10 minutes before we have to jump because because of your, your time right. thing. So, 10 what minutes, other? 15 minutes. Something I'm, like I'm well, just giving you time. <laughs> oh, thank you. Because we're, we're going to overrun, Jeff. We always do. Yeah, I know. I know. Um, what else you read? Well, uh, the stuff that I read that I thought was, you know, kind of meh, uh, The Shadow number three, uh, Wonder Woman number 10, which uh, once again looked lovely, um, Batwoman number 10, which I, I act, every time it pops up in my pull pile, I'm like, why haven't I stopped this again? That, that, Where, was, that was me for like three issues. And I, yeah, I kept I, on being like, oh, I meant to cancel this. And then not doing it. Eventually, I pulled the trigger and I feel so much better afterwards. I really envy you because particularly this issue, which is probably fine, is still doing this like cut between like – and I admit it. I'm not paying attention because I don't give a shit. And there's massive amounts of Batwoman's story now, you know. And then it's like Katie Kane's story 35 minutes ago. I'm like, what? You're still doing that? Like it's just this whole – maybe it'll look awesome in, in the collection. But uh, let so yeah, those were like less successful. Um, Walking Dead ninety nine, which I thought was eh, fine. You know, I think some people are it, it, going to be excited about issue one hundred. I don't know, but Saga number three, which I adored, um, was great. I, that was I think the best of the flop. Yeah, I, I I have not read, and I really want to. It's one of those things where I'm like, 
just give myself the brain space because it's, it's been yeah. another of those weeks where you're like, hey, turn around. Oh, that's what I'm doing. Oh, okay then. <laughs> you must Definitely. be the same. You're preparing for a trip. Are you not also oh, yeah. having one of those weeks where you're like, I, you know, I guess I can't sit down tonight after all. Yeah, no, I'm kind of, we're, we've kind of have that going on. Like when I jump off this phone, it's going to be back to a lot of manic rushing around. And I thought like I was going to be mixing this tonight and I don't know when. Um, <laughs> definitely pick up Saga number three. And, you know, one of the things that's great about it is, honest to God, that that, that first home. page is, is horrendous. I saw the first page with oh, yeah. sunlight. I was like, oh, no. And, you know, I have to say that that, that first page is, oh, uh, and then honestly, where it where that whole section of things goes is um, kind of unsurprising. Like, I, I think there's a good case to be made that story-wise, this is the most, uh, the flattest issue of Saga so far, in that it doesn't necessarily go anywhere new, I think, nor does anything really open up, I suppose. Is this the mm-hmm. third issue? It is. It's, it's the fourth third issue. issue, right? Fourth. Okay. Yeah. I'm like, okay, I'm doing this wrong. Cause I'm like, no, wait, cause each issue has introduced something incrementally new, except for this issue I felt was kind of like meh. Um, but a, it looks beautiful. The coloring just takes an, another just jump above and the letters column is fantastic. It's literally a fantastic piece of reading that makes me glad I picked up the book. And, and, and gives me that kind of like, oh, hey, comics with a community and a feeling and a sense that there's a creator here who actually doesn't secretly hate you is kind of fucking awesome. It really is an enjoyable, enjoyable read. Oh, if we didn't have no time left, I would totally ask you whether the reason you get that feeling is because Brian Vaughn essentially stays out of comics. Uh, I, I, th- I think that's a large part of it. Yeah, it could be. I, I think it's just it's um, that could be a huge chunk of it. I, we, I we should totally do our comics culture is toxic podcast next week. <laughs> no because we've talked we've genuinely talked about this before yes we have we and have. we've and we've always been like we should do this in the podcast and we've never done it let's do it next week let's actually do our because we both have different reasons why we think the comics culture is toxic yes so yeah, we should we should so. actually talk about that yes we should graham uh i'm just the, the idea of me just like with my mouth full going, oh, my comics are and someone going, sir, you're going to have to leave the waffle. <laughs> I'm telling you, we'll record that earlier and just drop it in. It'll be fine. Okay. No, yeah, yeah. no. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I think it's just Brian K. Vaughn could, could very easily hate, com- may hate me personally and, or, you know, vaguely or specifically. I think it's just, honestly, he's got a completely different vibe to his writing. Like, you know, so he's writing a letters column that is kind of witty and self-effacing uh, and doesn't really seem to have a love of Howard Stern. So there's not the, oh, and everyone loves jocular bullying, you know, kind of thing. So I think, I think generally it works. You know, if it gets to the point where, I mean, let's face it, the guy, there are a lot of guys who I feel, you know, Brian Bendis, who I feel doesn't necessarily hate his readers, um, used to have a great letters page. And I think moves, you know, it just became a letters page where it was, you know, when the powers letter page, and this is something I think Hibbs pointed out, but it's like when it's three pages of him reprinting an interview of him talking about secret invasion it's 
it's gone it's gone pear shaped. You know what I mean? Like the idea that he is actually using his indie book to hype his company owned creator worked project rather than the other way around just kind of shows you how fucked up things got. You know what I mean? And so um you know and and Walking Dead I can't stand that letters page, frankly, and I really do feel that uh, I I know that Robert Kirkman. Well, no, I suspect he doesn't hate people as much as it comes across on the page, and it's just not writing right because I've seen him perform, so to speak, and he manages to carry it off in his voice. But you know that's got a terrible letters page, and it doesn't make me loathe Walking Dead any less. Um, no, wait, anymore. I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying, Brad. <laughs> I like Walking this is, Dead. This is what we have to look forward to next week. In Dude, and more of it. Exactly. If I'm lucky, I'll be tripping balls on muscle relaxants when we talk. And and we will actually be in person. And you'll be like, Jeff, why are your eyes crossing? And I'll be like, oh. Half the podcast will be like, Jeff, are you okay? Jeff, Jeff, are you okay? Yeah. No, really. Like, are, are, Jeff, you look weird. Are you fine? Should we stop <laughs> recording? And you'll just leave all of that in. <laughs> I will. I just be like grounds, <laughs> challengers oh, of the unknown. Man. <laughs> oh, so man. yeah, yeah, no. Uh, oh, so here's the thing. Let me tell you that is hard for me to talk about, um, literally, <laughs> because I I feel like I shouldn't talk about it. But Graham, did you know that the Stanley Mobius Silver Surfer <laughs> miniseries is on Comicsology for like a dollar ninety nine an issue? I did not know that. Yeah, you can pick up both issues of that for like four bucks, and it's you know it's motherfucking Mobius drawing the Silver Surfer. And On the, the thing other that hand, kills me, it is Steve Stanley from the eighties writing it. Oh yeah, it is pretty bad. But you know, um, swings and roundabouts there, Jeff. Swings and roundabouts. Yeah, 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 definitely. Uh, and also, I should mention. Um, did, you, did you ever pick up the one shot Batgirl Adventures that came out like? God, must have been a decade ago, written by Paul Dini and art by Rick Burchett, done in the, the animated Supergirl's size adventures? There was there was a Supergirl's Adventure one shot, but this is the Batgirl Adventures one shot. I didn't I didn't even know there one exi- there one existed. It is also available on Comixology for ninety nine cents and ninety nine cents, I should say, and it's like a forty pager. Looks great, like Rick Burchett totally drawing in the Bruce Tim style. But it's oh, he he did that stuff wonderfully. Yeah, and but even more so, it is it is one of the best examples of like panel to panel, page by page storytelling. Like he has like you know because it's essentially forty pages of like chasing and fighting, and it is phenomenal. It just reads terrifically. So that is one that is a ninety nine cent comic. I totally recommend for people. It's not perfect because weirdly it got colored too dark actually. So there's weird things where Batgirl sort of disappears into the background more than she's supposed to, but it is for a 99 cent comic book that is just jumping and punching done in the animated series style. It it is it is phenomenal. It is a great book. And that's that's available for 99 cents. And while I mention it, they're still doing those flash issues. Like they're up to the Messner Loeb issues. Like they're around issue 30 of the Wally West flash stuff. And every issue is 99 cents a pop. Oh, God. I wish you hadn't told me that. That's, I, I know. love that stuff. Exactly. Love it. Yeah. Okay. Yes. I'm going to pre- pretend you didn't say that because, <laughs> yeah, that is the sort of stuff that I'd be tempted to buy. 
Yeah. So I wanted to let you know. I also wanted to let other people who are a little looser and crazier with their 99 cent digital increments than you. Um, those are those are some pretty great deals that are out there now that are lurking around, along with the Post Brothers, which I just think is amazing. Good yeah. job. So what was the other book that you read? You mentioned Casanova. And uh, Aven- Avengers X-Men. Avengers X-Men 6. Uh, oh, oh, and well, so tell us about it for a few minutes. I think we've, we've got um, five or ten. If Avengers versus X-Men, if it was written more subtly, mm-hmm. this would have been a great issue. Interesting. Um, sadly, it's not. And so mm-hmm. therefore, it's kind of horrible. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the setup. The setup mm-hmm. is five of the X-Men now have the Phoenix Force. Right. They have decided they're going to make the world a better place. Right. There are two problems with this. One, every single time superhero comics have done this in the past, you've mm-hmm. had the same story, mm-hmm. which is power corrupts. Absolute mm-hmm. power corrupts absolutely every single time. Mm-hmm. Thing number two the foreshadowing in Avengers vs. X-Men is some of the most... I, it's not true. It's either some of the least subtle foreshadowing in contemporary culture, or it is a perfect fake-out. That's great. Because you have... You have basically have scenes where characters are like, Cyclops, what have you done? And he'll be like, I've done what you've always wanted. Doesn't this make you happy? Creepy smile. Uh, and, and, and that's that's Grant, the point of it. I don't mean to interrupt you, but if you could just read the rest of the issue with Cyclops <laughs> as Count Chocula, I would be so happy. That no, was that, like that, the best that, thing ever. That is, that's the, the approach of the book. And so you have characters having these debates about maybe the X-Men aren't all bad. And then you have one of the X-Men with the Phoenix Force basically being like, oh, they don't see that we're doing the best for them that we can. Maybe we will kill them. Do you know what I mean? It's like, really? Like the the cliffhanger is Cyclops saying, essentially, I've realized what's been going on wrong all along. It's the Avengers. We'll have to get rid of them. Wait, can you say that like Count Chocula, though? <laughs> no. Ah, <laughs> damn it, it was great. I realize what's been going wrong with the Avengers all along. Delicious chocolate-flavored marshmallows. All right, I don't. I was, I was going to, then I stopped. But do you know what I mean? Like, if, if your cliffhanger mm-hmm. is, I'll have to get rid of the Avengers. Like, you've lost the whatever moral ambiguity you're going for. And they're clearly going for moral ambiguity because the mm-hmm. action of the Avengers is, of the X Men in the book is they have created peace on Earth. They have mm-hmm. like instead of fighting with supervillains, they ha- they are talking to them. They are you know they've removed conflicts. They've created all these environmental solutions, yada yada. But then immediately as soon as you have Cyclops saying the problem is the Avengers, I'll have to get rid of them. He's become a bad guy like immediately. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. any element of trying to dress it up is in like well you depends what site you look at it no as soon right. as a guy says these guys are the problem and you know they're not mm-hmm. i'll have to get rid of them right like he's the bad guy and it's just like i said it's either the least subtle comic in the world or it's the most spectacular fake out ever right right 
Who did the writing, uh, writing and artering on this? It is Jonathan Hickman, just the writing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Olivier Quapel or Coipel does mm. the, the art. I see. And it's it's very pretty and you know, it's it's again dabbing fame praise. It's nice. It's nice. <laughs> it's good enough. But it right. does have these moments of like jaw dropping completely horrific foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. Overbalances everything. Well, it does sound like there's a real lack of nuance there. I that love really to have seen the book with all the X Men. Like, you know, why are you unhappy with this? If they take, if they taken all of those things out, and you just had, you know, if you had the X Men as the distant characters who you never got to spend time with, and you mm-hmm. just see the other characters being like, they've done all this great stuff. Are we being paranoid? It right. would have been an infinitely better comic. Because Absolutely. You wouldn't have known how the X-Men fell. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's the people talking about them and saying, right. but all they've done is stuff. You could have said, look, Captain America's being a paranoid dick. Like, you could have made that argument as soon as you have Cyclops being creepy. Right. And the other thing that's, that's horrific about it is the Infinite Comic tie-in mm-hmm. issue is, um, is Cyclops going to the moon, talking to the reanimated ghost of... Jean Grey, and coming away with the lesson that the Phoenix Force is corrupting him unless he pays enough attention. What? Yeah. And it's like, even if that's his interpretation of the, of the conversation, mm-hmm. you've, you've given away the ending. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, that's... It's, yeah, yeah. it's really sad. I, I, even though I did not in any way expect it, I hoped that, you know, the X-Men now are all Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Going to go in a direction where it wouldn't be, and that fucks them up. Do you know right. what I mean? I hope mm-hmm. there's going to be some alternative to the power corrupt story, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and there's not. It's it's just another variation on they're doing what seems like the right thing, but eventually they'll get greedy. Mm-hmm. And we've mm-hmm. all seen that story before. Right, right. Yeah, that's a bummer. It really is. But, you know, eh, comics, what can you do? <laughs> <laughs> yes, ladies and gentlemen, our new motto, as uh, mentioned by Graham McMillan. Look for it on T-shirts everywhere. Exactly. Uh, next week, Jeff, next week when we're face-to-face. You know what's going to happen next week when we're face-to-face? I would almost lay money that we're going to break into laughter a lot more. <laughs> but there's going to be the visual cues. Right. There are going to be. Well, that's it. I'm still kind of trying to like come to terms with like I, what I really should have done is taken your delightful photo that you sent last week and put it on my computer screen and stared at it the entire time we were talking. So I could get used to that feeling because as it is, I'm like, <laughs> like maybe if we like are talking like face to face or we're holding up comic books to. Yeah, honestly, I think there's going to be a lot of laughing and. And depending on when we do it, it's got to, it's, it's, you know, like if we even have new comics, cause I'm going to be all like, Hey, I'm in Portland. Let's run around. Woo. Kind of thing. You know, I, I like, it's going to be raining. Woo. We can do it on Thursday. We should try and do it on Thursday. Yeah. I think, I think if we can make that work, I think that would be a good idea. Cause that way we can. It's like my, story. Cause I, my time is still going to be available. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. The time I not right. set aside for it. Yes. Uh, exactly. So that might work out. Yeah, I, I think I'll, I'll shoot for that. I, I think it has a good chance of happening. 
So. And now, dear listeners, this is where we have to leave you behind so that Jeff and I can plan the other parts of his visits. <laughs> <laughs> Secrets of the podcast, everyone. That's right. You guys, you could have paid an extra $3 a month to hear it, but no, nobody wanted additional content. That's fine. That's right. nobody said. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to stand up for our listeners. That's not... <laughs> I admit it. On your high horse right there, Mr. Lester. All right. I paraphrased badly. (laughs) Anyway, listeners, we will talk to you next week where Jeff and I are going to be um, face to face and probably making each other giggle. And if we could work out how to do it, which is a long shot because Jeff and I are not technically oriented, um, we might try and record at the waffle window at least part of it. At least part of it. Yeah, we've got to give we've got to at least give it a try. God bless them. Okay. Even if I mean we could even try and buy the waffle window and then eat is record outside depending on what the weather's like. Well, yeah, see, I'm still trying to figure out how to make that work cuz I'm like it, the waffle window is outside the window. I can't imagine holding up. So it's like maybe if totally. I can find my if, dictaphone. If it's but you if know it's what I mean? not mm-hmm. If it's not busy, you totally could. Do you think? Okay. Yeah. Well, we'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll discuss this when we stop recording. There's absolutely exactly. reason for everyone to have to listen to this sort of boredom. Listener, no kidding. Thanks very much. I hope that we entertained you this week. I hope that uh, our long-winded digressions – I feel like we were very digression-way this week um, – mm-hmm. were of suitable entertainment. And everyone who wants to tell me that I'm wrong about Casanova in the comments, have at it. Because I think I'm wrong as well. Yes. Also refer to him as Count Chocula. Okay. (laughs) Bye! (laughs) Fabulous, sir. Fabulous. Fabulous.